The Roundball Project is brought to you by Striptease, the one-stop shop for the discerning Australian football fan. They specialise in designing football-centric shirts, hoodies, phone cases and masks. Yes, masks. Plus a whole lot more so you can look as good around town as you do at the game. Find them at striptease.com.au. That's S-T-R-I-P-T-E-E-S dot com dot A-U. Enjoy the podcast. Did the fullback bring him down? First time, maybe even second time. Still we go on. Juric has dribbled his way clear. Joining me today is the man who you hear on the mic in most Socceroos ties and A-League ties. 14 years ago, he uttered the famous phrase, Australia have done it after Tim Cahill's first strike against Japan in 2006. 14 years on, we've had World Cups, A-League Grand Finals, AFC Champions League ties, an Asian Cup triumph, and here we are today to have a chat with my personal idols, Simon Hill. Nice to be with you. How are you? Very good. How are you? Good, thank you. Yeah, Very good. surviving COVID-19 lockdown, etc. Yes, absolutely. Doing quite well, I would say, but thought we'd delve into your career thus far. Uh, and I, today, obviously, is 14 years since the, uh, that famous day in 2006. Describe your emotions on that day and, um, I guess, reflecting back on it through these tumultuous times, uh, I'm sure it brings you a sense of uh, achievement for sure. Yeah, well, it's a, a reminder of, of what the game can do for people in this country. Uh, I think that was probably the Socceroos best ever moment. Um, some may say it was the Serbia win four years later. But I think being the first World Cup finals game in 32 years, the fact that we scored at a World Cup finals for the first time ever and won a game for the first time ever, uh, all added up to make it very, very special. And uh, I think it was a, a particular moment in time that will probably never be repeated. And uh, we just wait for the next high. Uh, we're on a bit of a dip at the moment in the game, but uh, you know we, we'll be back, we'll return. And uh, that's a very special memory for me. And I think for a, a lot of people that uh, you know, are involved in football in this country. And I guess uh, the preparation, the sheets, the all the notes that you prepared before that game, obviously on display now at, um, at a strip tease, that collaboration you have. But before we get into that, um, just like on the day, your emotions, I, I guess, were they a bit of excitement, a bit of uh, eerie sense of anticipation, uh, anxiety? What were the emotions, I guess, surrounding that day? Yeah, look, I think a mixture of all of the above. The, the strange thing was is that... Uh, <laughs> That day was a really odd day because it began for me in Berlin, um, oh. which is about 650 kilometers away from Kaiserslautern. because I'd, I'd, I'd been there the day before hosting the SBS uh, World Cup show. I was on rotation with, with Les Murray and uh, the SBS team actually flew down south uh, to the south of Germany via a Lear jet. 
um, <laughs> which I think caused a bit of consternation at the time due to the perceived extravagance, which I can understand. But uh, Kaiserslautern didn't have an airport, uh, still doesn't as far as I'm aware. So the, the best way was, was deemed via this private jet that we flew to Saarbrücken, which was the closest airfield uh, to the stadium. And then we got uh, taxis from Saarbrücken to Kaiserslautern. And it wasn't until we were in Kaiserslautern that I, you know, I probably started to realize, I mean, I knew anyway, but you start to get that sense of anticipation as to, uh, and realization as to just how big this is. Uh, prior to that, I'd probably been a bit too busy, to be honest, uh, because I was based for most of that tournament in Stuttgart, uh, near the Socceroos training base at Uringen. So I was working, you know, like a drain, um, uh, calling games, uh, doing press conferences, uh, making TV packages, and then flying to Berlin to do uh, hosting duties. I was also doing some speaking uh, gigs, I think, as well, one of which I actually did in Munich. <laughs> which, so it was a crazy Bizarre, sort of all world, place, yeah. very, very busy. Um, so on the day, I think, you know, when we arrived in Kaiserslautern, you saw so many Australians there in green and gold, and you thought, okay, this is... You know, this is this is pretty big, um, and then we had the long, steep walk up the Betzenberg Hill, which uh, on a very hot, sticky day. And by the time kickoff came around, yeah, I, I truly was sweating. But uh, <laughs> you know, as, soon as, as soon as the ref blows the whistle, it's a game of football. Whether it's uh, as I wrote in my piece, the wet weekend in uh, wet Wednesday in Wigan, or a World Cup in Kaiserslautern, so you've got to get on with it. And obviously, uh, thanks to our sponsor, Striptease, uh, they've come out or in collaboration with yourself, uh, nice, some, some pieces, merchandise, cups, notes, sort of go yeah. into that and, and where are the funds are uh, being donated to? Well, it, this was an idea that uh, Rob, who runs Striptease, uh, came up with a while ago. I actually posted some of my uh, pre-game notes, I think ahead yeah, of an A-League game. been a staple of my... soccer Twitter. I've, I've personally yeah. really enjoyed them, to be honest. Yeah, and lots of people seem to really be fascinated by them. So I, I sort of posted a few more and, uh, you know, Rob asked me whether I still have my notes from uh, the Uruguay game, which um, I can't remember whether I posted those or not or whether they've gone missing. But I remembered that I had the notes from the Japan game in 2006. So when I posted uh, those up, uh, Rob got in touch with me and said, oh, they'd look great on a T-shirt. You know, that, those little <laughs> captions where I've got kale underlined twice, very scruffy writing, because of course I was doing it in the moment in 2006. Uh, so I said, yeah, you know, let's, if you want to do that, great. And he said, why don't we uh, give away the proceeds to a charity that's, or a, a cause that's close, you know, to both of our hearts. And we, we agreed on the John Moriarty Football Foundation, which uh, gives opportunities to, to young indigenous kids to pursue their football dreams. So that's what we did, and um, the JMF are fully on board with it. So hopefully we can raise as much money as possible for them and uh, you know, start the journey for a few of those Indigenous kids who might not otherwise get the opportunity. I think especially during these times uh, with, the, with the crisis and especially the activism that's uh, been very prevalent in our media in the past couple of weeks, uh, the fact that giving these kids an opportunity to play at a high level is definitely should be at our top priority at the moment and i think it's fantastic that we can combine our history our lineage with the future so that's that's something that's very uh, poignant in yeah, my mind I, I think also sorry to interrupt neil but uh, you know the one of the issues we have in this country there's so much indigenous talent 
And certainly in the women's game, we, we've seen a few come through, mm. the likes of Kaya Simon and, and uh, Lydia Williams, uh, even Shay Evans, who's, who's coming through the system now. And she's actually a product of the John Moriarty School in Borolula. But in the men's game, I don't know where that Indigenous talent is. In fact, I, I think Nathaniel Atkinson is the only early player I know of at the moment that actually identifies as being Indigenous. In the past, we had Travis Dodd and Fred Aegis, uh, David Williams, Jade North, uh, you know, we had sort of a handful, but at the moment they, they drop right off the radar for some reason. And we need to rectify that because there's a lot of talent there. Absolutely. You see in Australian rules football, there's an abundance of indigenous talent, uh, indigenous talent, and there's no reason why that couldn't be implemented in football. That's for sure. Absolutely. So, absolutely. So the, obviously with the NPL, the National Premier Leagues, there are, uh, a multitude of upcoming commentators uh, rising through the ranks. Obviously, myself just getting involved with Football Victoria. Um, you've been a very big voice uh, throughout the discussions so far. Uh, obviously, commentating last week on that brilliant game in uh, uh, MPL Northern Territory. If you haven't checked that game out, oh, it's an absolute stunner. Uh, but what is the key to making a a good commentator. I know it's a bit of a, blank, uh, a broad term, but um, what are some of the, let, let's put a checklist of the things that you must embody in order to have a powerful charisma uh, when it comes to the mic. Um, well, the, the most important thing really is to do your research. Um, you know, make sure you know what you're actually talking about. That's the the key to, to everything really, and particularly a game like the one I did last week, which was Hellenic uh, against Mindel Aces. Obviously they're not teams that I cover on a regular basis and I, I didn't know their players. So I'd, I made it my duty, uh, given that I was calling the game, to, to make sure I, I found out at least something about all of the players I was gonna watch and, and talk about. Um, so, you know, that, that's, a, that's a very key component. You should never skimp on your research. And I don't, even for a regular A-League game, even though I know the competition pretty much back to front these days, uh, you know, you can always miss something and it can be something important. So that's the first thing. Uh, secondly, I think, is to sort of develop your own style. Um, you can take bits from other commentators. And, you know, I did the same when I was growing up. You can listen to commentators you like or admire and maybe try and incorporate some of their style into your own. But really, it's, it's about you. Um, and the third thing is, having said that, is even though you're, you're developing your own style, always remember that uh, the players on the pitch are the story, not you. Um, they're the ones that drive the narrative. So sometimes we get a little bit carried away, I think, you know, with our own importance, and we try and deliver the perfect line, or we try and be funny, or... It's not about us, really. Uh, the players are the stars. And I always say that, you know, we should be like the referee. You shouldn't really notice us when uh, we make a mistake, which incidentally leads to my final point on that. And I did make a mistake last Friday. I, I got one of the goal scorers wrong. Um, not helped, it must be said, by uh, a cameraman who missed a substitution. But uh, <laughs> you, know, you, you can't let your mistakes um, uh, get to you. You've got to put it behind. It's like a goalkeeper lets one through his legs. You know, put it behind you and get on with the game. So there's just a, a few little tips. I'm sure I'll take that on board for sure. Hopefully the MPL uh, does resume within Victoria and the other state federations. So why Australia, Simon? Why, why come to Australia? Obviously, uh, of, a, of a British background. What, what appealed 
to you, I, I guess, from a, from an Australian Football Links perspective, you wouldn't exactly uh, attract the such a such a, um, a well-travelled commentator that you are. Well, it was a combination of circumstances, really. In uh, 2001, uh, I'd been at the BBC for nearly 10 years in England, and I left the BBC in 2001 to work for ITV, a new venture called the ITV Sport Channel, which was the first real sort of uh, challenge in a pay TV sense to Sky Sports, who'd been much longer established, of course. Now, unfortunately, the channel only lasted 12 months because they didn't have a particularly good business plan. So myself and uh, a lot of other people were unfortunately made redundant uh, when that channel drew to a close. So I was looking for a job. I, I freelanced for about six months and actually had quite a nice little portfolio of work. And I was actually offered a job by Sky Sports in the UK in about uh, October, November 2002. But around the same time, uh, an old BBC colleague of mine, a friend called Rob Minchell, who now works for the ABC up in Brisbane, uh, he'd been in Australia for a few years prior. And uh, he said to me during a phone call, look, they're looking for a football commentator over here for SPS. Why don't you apply? And I said, you know, they're not going to want me. They don't know anything about me. I live on the other side of the earth. But he went on about it for so long that in the end, more to sort of keep him quiet <laughs> as anything else, I said, look, okay, I'll stick in a CV and put in a showreel and, and see what happens, which I did. I thought that'd be the end of it. And uh, to my amazement, uh, I got uh, an email from Ken Ship at SBS a couple of weeks later saying, look, we're interested. Um, do you want to come over to Australia? Offer me a contract. Uh, and then I had a big decision to make, really. Do I stay in the UK with Sky or, or do I take a chance uh, in a country that I only ever visited for five days, didn't know anything about? I only had one friend there, which was Rob. Um, but I, I was about 34, 35 then. I wasn't married, uh, didn't have any kids. Uh, I still don't have any kids. Um, so I, I thought, you know, now's the chance to do something different. I, I always wanted to live overseas and experience a different culture. Um, so I thought, what the heck, I'll, you know, I'll do something different, thinking it would be for, you know, two or three, four years maybe, and, uh, and then I'd move back. But 17 years later, I'm still here. Yeah. And I think we're blessed with, honestly, I think it's, it's such a soothing, just the, the, the mic, the quality is just such a soothing thing to hear in the background of any football game. I think um, even with the, with the absence of crowds in the recent AFL and NRL fixtures, um, the, the commentators just they just seem so so uh, enthusiastic still and to, to maintain that um, over the course of 14 15 years uh, which you've been here has it's been a blessing in disguise really so gotta say thank well you. football you know football is my passion it's not just what I do it's who I am um, I was you know involved in football from being four or five years old going to watch my team back in Manchester which is city of course um, and it's been a lifelong passion. So, you know, I've, I, I still get excited, whether it's, uh, you know, the Northern Territory game between Hellenic and Mindel or doing a World Cup game in Kaiserslautern. It's, it's all a game of football, and I just love the sport. I mean, ultimately, it comes down to passion at the end of the day. But I guess moving on to, the, to sort of your initial impressions of Australian football, how acclimatised were you to Australian football uh, for, from I guess from when you first got here to obviously to now, uh, what what strikes you that's different about Australian football, and is it is it the potential? Is it the um, the atmosphere? Is it the the administration? What strikes you that 
really is, I guess, uh, attractive in your eyes? Well, look, it's, it's certainly very different. There's no doubt about that. And um, when I first arrived, I mean, I knew a bit. I'd made sure I did some research. You know, I read Johnny Warren's book, Sheila's Wolves and Poofters, and one or two others. So, I, I, you know, I knew a bit of what I was getting myself into. But obviously, it's not until you, you hit the ground that you really start learning. And, you know, clearly it was different to, to football in England. It's a lot smaller. It's not the, the, the code of choice in terms of, uh, popularity over here um, but that doesn't mean that people aren't as passionate uh, about the game albeit in smaller numbers so you know it was it was a, a pretty swift learning curve <clears throat> you know I went to NSL games and started watching Parramatta Power and Marconi Stallions and Northern Spirit and all that sort of stuff um, and quite quickly I, I fell in love with it over here um, I thought it was and still do think it's, it's an absolutely fascinating culture it's got a very checkered history but that's no less interesting because of that and I think you know still we're talking today about potential which is unfortunate um, because we should be much further down the line than we actually are but that potential is still there I, I think we've only just begun to scratch the surface of it there are plenty of football fans in this country. Uh, the problem is, as we all know, is that not enough of them follow the A-League or watch it on TV. So we've got big problems to solve still, um, but we've made good progress in 15 years. People forget that. You know, this is still a pretty new league um, in a country where it's, you know, at best the third most popular football code. Uh, and yet we've had wonderful successes. Australia winning the Asian Cup, qualifying for the World Cup four consecutive times. The Matildas winning the Asian Cup. The Wanderers being champions of Asia. Sellout grand finals, sellout derby, 61,000 for Sydney against Western Sydney Wanderers. And all those players that have gone on to play in the big leagues of Europe. So, you know, it's not quite <clears throat> all doom and gloom as, as we seem to feel at the moment, although we're, we are on a bit of a dip. Um, and I think those, you know, those good times will eventually come back sooner rather than later, I hope. Yeah, absolutely. So let's picture this. It's a game day. It's, uh, I don't know, <clears throat> Melbourne victory versus, hmm, I'm trying to pick a good team. Um, Western United, why not? Uh, it's at Marvel Stadium, okay? So describe a sort of the, the, the um, day from... I don't know, 8 a.m. to kick off or whenever you wake up to kick off. What are these what sort of actions that go into a match day? Well, by the Saturday morning, <clears throat> excuse me, all, all my prep has been done. Uh, I would have finished that off on the Friday, so all my notes are ready to go. Uh, if it's a game at Marvel Stadium in Melbourne, then um, the first thing I have to do is get on a plane in Sydney because that's where <laughs> I live. Uh, so that takes up obviously a, a decent chunk of the day. We'd normally fly around midday. So we arrive about 1.30, 2 o'clock, um, assuming it's an evening kickoff. Uh, we would then go to our hotel after picking up the hire car, uh, maybe get an hour's sleep, maybe have a bite to eat, and then, uh, yeah, get ourselves off to the stadium. Um, <clears throat> normally what happens, excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat here. <coughs> Normally what happens is, um, you know, I'll, I'll have maybe an hour or two uh, pre-kickoff to study the team lineups and uh, try and get those into my head. Um, 
I'll maybe go down to the tunnel and talk to one or two of the players or the referee or <clears throat> Kevin Muscat if he was the coach of Melbourne Victory or Mark Rudin. Um, and just sort of generally, you know, get yourself sort of settled and, and ready for the, for the game to come. So it, it's, um, it's busy but leisurely on game day because all the hard work, it's a bit like being a coach, you know, all the hard work has been done during the week and you're literally just waiting for the, for the whistle so you can put it all into practice, basically. And I guess, uh, <clears throat> what's the exact figure on the amount of A-League games that, that you've commentated specifically? I'm not sure if that figure's out there, but... Um, well, I, I couldn't tell you. It would be well into the thousands, I would imagine. I know I've done 158 Socceroo games um, and if you think that they play on average, what, seven or eight times so, yeah. a year, and I've been covering them for 15 years, uh, there are roughly 130-odd, 140 A-League games per year. If you add in FFA Cup, Champions League, W League, everything else, it would be well into the thousands. Maybe, maybe that's what I have to do. Maybe I have to go back and count them all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think someone should make a compila compilation of a one-second clip from every single Simon Hill commentating A-League game. That'd be brilliant. Wow. Someone should That'd do be that. a long DVD, that one. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd certainly be the first one to buy it, that's for sure. Uh, but coming to, I guess, your most fond memories of Socceroos and Australian ties, obviously we went over uh, that, that fantastic game uh, in 2006. Are there any that really stick out to you? Obviously, as a Melbourne Victory <laughs> fan, I've heard you talk about it previously. Uh, Terry Antonis' strike sticks out to myself. Um, but yeah. just on a personal note, what, what sticks out to you, I guess? Uh, look, I think that, you know, those World Cup games in 2006 were, were very special. Um, uh, I think, you know, because they were my first uh, games in terms of commentary at a World Cup, I'd been to a World Cup before. Uh, but not as a caller. So they were very special. Um, I think in terms of the uh, domestic games, yeah, the grand finals probably, you know, stand out. Uh, the one in 2011. <coughs> between I was actually just Brisbane watching that today. I'm like, I'm like, I feel like Simon will like this because it's a crazy game. Really yeah. crazy that, game. That was, that was a great one to do, Brisbane Mariners in 2011. Um, but there were others for different reasons. You know, the Victory Adelaide game in... 2007, which wasn't much of a contest, but the atmosphere inside the ground with 55,000. And, you know, John Howard was there, the Prime Minister, which gave us a, a real sense of, you know, belonging, I think, to the mainstream. Uh, 2015, Victory Sydney, Amy Park, small stadium, but brilliant atmosphere because of that. Uh, and every seat sold out. Yep, I was there too. Um, some of the Derby games, you know, it's, there are so many of them. Um, and the Asian Cup final in 2015 as well, you know, that was, that was a fantastic thing to do. Um, and, and for my own, you know, personal sense of satisfaction, some of the away games that we've done with the Socceroos in, you know, far flung places like Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan or, uh, Lebanon, um, you know, they, they were real great trips, not just for the football, but, you know, life experiences going to some of these places. Iran in 2017, Honduras, you know, we, we've traveled the world's uh, uh, covering football with the Socceroos and um, that's been a real privilege because you don't often get to go and see those places. That's 
I think for many that'd be the dream. I can't remember. I can remember I was like maybe nine years old. I was just <laughs> in my mind, just commentating what's going on. Like these kids just playing football or AFL in, in like the school grounds. You just, you just, it's something that really sticks out to me. It's just um, commentating on the action, I guess, providing that ambience to uh, your casual football game or even life scenarios. I've obviously, um, I think the absence of football and sport nowadays, and I guess it's sort of coming back to an extent, uh, to have that, just the whole ambience surrounding a football match and the commentators just, you know, chatting amongst themselves. It's really, I, I think, we tend to neglect, I think, how, how important commentators are. And uh, I don't well, know. That's nice to hear. No, I, I, <laughs> I, personally, I, I personally appreciate it to, to, to the fullest extent. Um, obviously, there are, there are thousands of clips of uh, classic A-League commentators, you know, um, individual brilliance uh, from Ned Zelich. Uh, what else would that be? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> There, there. Look at any footballing podcast intro. You'll find you'll find many, but I guess uh, these memories being long travelled, I could not imagine the things you've seen and the the places you've been to. The views as well would have been quite the same. Well, you know, I'll, I'll give you one little example, and I'll use that trip in Kyrgyzstan in 2015. Uh, and Kyrgyzstan is, you know, a place most people, myself included, prior to going there would have really had to study hard on the map to find. Um, and it was the biggest game in their history. And I sat along with Andy Harper on a very rickety uh, balsa wood board, basically. That was as basic as it came. Uh, and a stadium that was absolutely jam-packed. I mean, people were pouring over the walls like ants because they were so desperate to see this game. So the noise was phenomenal. And then away to our right, we had the backdrop of these beautiful mountains, uh, the Alatu mountain range. Uh, and I remember sitting there pre-kickoff and just sort of looking around with the floodlights were on because it was nighttime and thinking, geez, this ain't bad, you know, for a kid from Manchester. Uh, here I am in Kyrgyzstan about to call a World Cup qualifier, these beautiful mountains, you know, passionate football people. Um, and I'm calling it for an audience in Australia, which, you know, as a kid growing up in Manchester in Northern England, I never dreamed of any of that. Really. Well, I might have dreamt of it, but I never thought it would. Uh, <laughs> Congratulations. It, yeah. so, brilliant. Yeah. So I'm not sure if commentators exa exactly have favorite players. Uh, haven't really heard of we them. do. Yeah. <laughs> and I was about to ask that. Uh, do you have any favorites, I guess, historically and currently? Um, just like we put a shout out to Jakob Paulson. You know, little, little figure in here. He's, <laughs> he's retired now. Yeah, he's retired. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Victory uh, put this out just after he retired, ironically enough. But... Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a good investment, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have any personal favourites uh, currently and historically? Um, well, I would say historically, look, in A-League terms, Thomas Broich was obviously... Oh. A favorite I, I loved watching Thomas play and he's uh, actually cool. taken up commentating too actually I believe yes he has back in Germany yeah he's um, commentating so on he, he was a terrific player to watch I enjoy watching Bessar Borussia um, because you know you can see when the eyes go mm. and he's got that fire in his belly I know he's I know he's Vegemite I know people either love him or hate him but his, his I, I love that passion that he <laughs> has there you go, there's um, in terms of overseas players uh, when I was uh, commentating back in the in the UK for the BBC, 
uh, I have to say it was an absolute privilege to, to watch Dennis Bergkamp live oh. in the flesh. He was a sensational player. Saw the game two or three moves ahead of everybody else um, and obviously had brilliant footwork as well. Could score goals, create goals. But it was, it was the sharpness of his brain that I enjoyed watching. Uh, particularly, you can pick up some of it on a TV screen, but when you're there live watching, you see just it's how different. good he's completely was. different. Yeah. So, yeah, he was he was probably the best as a fan. You know, obviously as a Man City fan, I I love players like Georgie Kinkladze back in the day. And um, you know, when I was a kid, and obviously I'm an awful lot older than you, there was a guy called Colin Bell who ran around in the 70s. He was my childhood hero. I used to have big posters of him on my wall. So yeah, there's been a few down the years. I guess what. Well, in, uh, I'm in various, uh, you know, A-League group chats, Caltex uh, Australian football fans being the most uh, prominent one. Uh, people please, please, do you remember the sponsor name? Very good. <laughs> actually not sponsored by Caltex, actually. <laughs> Funnily <laughs> enough. Not <laughs> I'm not sure why they would sponsor a you know, group chat, anyway. Um, the, people often like to hamper on about the bias. Oh, this commentator is biased towards this team. This commentator is... Uh, personally, obviously there isn't. I, I, I would like to think there isn't. But why do, th- why do you think people come up with these perspectives? And uh, is it something that, I guess, you'd pay attention to as something to improve on or either address in some way? There's a very simple answer to that, Neil. Have a look at the colour of the shirt you're wearing. That's where your bias is. It's not the commentator. And trust me, if we were biased in any way, shape or form, we would be very unprofessional and we wouldn't keep our jobs very long. Now, we just call it as we see it. And sometimes that's against your team. Sorry, but that's the way it is. But all this nonsense of your bias towards Sydney. I mean, okay, I live in Sydney. I'm not from Sydney, as you can tell from my accent. And I am very open about the team I support. Everybody knows I'm a Manchester City fan. (laughs) So why anybody would think I'd support anybody else? I've said a million times, there's only room in my heart for one club, and that's Manchester City. Um, I don't support anybody else. And that includes, incidentally, Melbourne City as well. Yes, I know they're an offshoot of the City Football Group. Doesn't matter to me. The only team for me is Manchester City, so I can uh, I can assure everybody. But you know, this is it's something that everybody loves to to, to prattle on about. Oh, this commentator's biased towards yeah. that team. He's biased against that team. We used to get the same, you know, in the UK. Uh, it's it's all about the team that you support and uh, this perceived um, you know bias against your team. It's complete and utter nonsense i can't put it any clearer than that there we go i'm definitely i'm gonna clip that i'm gonna put that up on twitter that's gonna get traction i know (laughs) blunt statement obviously as someone who has a a true sense it's it's kind of obvious to the to the the casual well actually it's not obvious to the casual it's uh yeah it's a complicated scenario but i thought we'd go into some facebook and twitter questions some of them some of these are actually quite good in my opinion um, some Charlie Keenan, Simon. Where do you think that the Newcastle Jets have gone wrong since the grand final season a few years back, and how can they get back to that level? Or do you think it was a fluke fairy tale type run? 
Well, no, I certainly don't think it was a fluke. They had uh, they had a very good season that year, but you, you could, I think, tell a little bit, even towards the end of that season, that they tailed off just a bit. And part of the reason was, of course, they lost Andrew Naboot, who was a big part of their success, uh, along with Dimi Petratos, it must be said. And I think they took uh, a little while to recover from that. Um, the season after... I don't think their recruitment was quite as good, and you know, particularly in terms of of some of their foreigners. And this is, you know, this is normally the key. If you get your foreigners right in the A League, then you you've be got a better than average chance. I think of, the best of example. Well. I mean, unbiased perspective. Um, Sydney FC, namely, they've done brilliantly in the past couple Absolutely. of seasons. Melbourne Victory yeah. in the 2015 winning season. I think uh, you don't often get it right, but when you get it right success on the park you know let's use Sydney FC as, as the example for and hopefully I don't get accused of bias for this either but <laughs> you know over the last two or three seasons they have had a very solid recruitment policy and when they've got it wrong they've been quick to rectify it now I'll give you um, uh, one uh, classic example uh, the, the Dutch centre back who's I knew you were going to say this you're Van der Linden, yeah. escapes I knew you were going to say that um, and that. he didn't work and very quickly they, they moved him on and you know made sure they got a replacement and the following season they brought in Ryan McGowan uh, to partner Alex Wilkinson and they've been terrific at the back. Um, Adam LaFondre, everybody said when Bobo left, oh, that's, that's a massive lot. How are they going to replace Bobo? All those goals he scored. In came Adam LaFondre. I mean, they, be they barely missed a beat. So if you get your recruitment right, particularly your foreigners, then I think you've got a very, very good chance. But a lot of clubs find that very difficult. And it is. It's an inexact science. Um, and I think Newcastle probably got that wrong, maybe through no fault of their own the season after. I think that's one of the, the reasons uh, uh, they struggled. How can they get back? Well, another issue they've got is that uh, their owner, Martin Lee, I think has suffered a big downturn uh, in his business. So therefore, you know, the, the, the purse strings have been tightened a little bit um, and it makes it difficult. Even though we have a salary cap competition, you know, it's a soft cap. And clubs like Sydney, Victory, the bigger clubs in the competition, are able to go out and, you know, invest a bit more, get the likes of Keisuke Honda or Ola Toivonen or Milos Ninkovic, or keep them. Um, you know, we saw that with Ninkovic. He was, uh, he was interesting, the, the new boys next season, MacArthur FC, but Sydney FC made him an offer and, you know, obviously made it worth his while to stay. So a lot of it is, is down to recruitment. Um, and, and also the budgets you have available. So, you know, hopefully there is some talk that Newcastle might be sold over the next, uh, you know, couple of months to an, a different investor. Hopefully, if that is the case, then they have, uh, you know, deep pockets and, and we'll see the Jets back up near the top. And I guess from the Newcastle Jets to the A-League, uh, you mentioned it a, a bit before about the, the struggles that the A-League are currently experiencing, the amount of... Uh, news reports coming out of um, Sydney Morning Herald, The Age, and uh, uh, News Corp uh, have been paramount regarding the uh, return to play and the sort of struggles uh, within our game more broadly, uh, youth development-wise, with the recent Gold Generation discussions. Uh, but Vic Toru asks, what does the A-League need to be, quote, great again? 
Uh, one word answer, money. Simple. I mean, cool. at the moment, you know, we, we just, we don't have it, uh, at least not in the same uh, amounts that the other codes do, which, you know, keeps us unfortunately on the periphery of the sporting mainstream. Uh, look, we all know at the moment that, you know, there is a big question mark over the TV deal, whether it's going to continue or whether it's going to continue at a much lower figure. Uh, television companies are, are struggling financially, particularly post-COVID-19, so they're looking for reductions. And unfortunately, as a game, you know, we haven't performed very well over the last three years. Certainly the A-League hasn't in terms of ratings and crowds and interest. So, you know, we've got a big challenge ahead of, of us over the next uh, 12 months, and it is incumbent upon our game's leaders to make the right decisions. Now, I don't think that they've necessarily done that over the last two or three years. We had a three-year civil war over the governance of the game, went on far too long, and there's blame on all sides. Um, that stopped investment and uh, uh, creativity around selling the A-League. So the competition has really stagnated over the last three years. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of people have to share in, in that blame, but we are where we are. And over the next 12 months, the game has to come together. All the stakeholders, our game has traditionally been so fractured between state, different states, different clubs, different leagues, old soccer, new football, if you want to put it that way. And I know people hate that term. I do too. Everybody's got to come together. Otherwise, we're not going to survive, or at least not in a professional sense. So we're almost in the last chance saloon here. Um, it's as stark as that. And if we don't get it right this time, there might not be another opportunity. I guess as a follow-up to that question, uh, in regards to, I guess, the intense debate surrounding, I think, well, I think largely the sort of uh, governance of the game, James Johnson has come in uh, this January uh, and has <clears throat> administered this whole COVID-19 crisis. He's obviously dealing with the Women's World Cup bid, which will be announced in two weeks. Hopefully, uh, we can uh, triumph there. Obviously, you've been a very uh, avid supporter, and I am too. I'm going to hopefully get a podcast uh, purely based on that bid very soon. Uh, but what are your thoughts on James Johnson so far? I think many people have faith within him. I personally do. Um, do you think he's a, a stark difference from David Gallup, or is it more of the same? No, I do think he's different. Um, he's different in a very fundamental way in that he's a football man. And look, we say this a lot and people go, what is a football person? Uh, to me, I think he instinctively understands the issues, uh, which David might have done to a certain extent as well. But more importantly, he understands how football people think, what drives them, particularly supporters, but also players and coaches, because he played the game. Uh, at NSL level for the Brisbane Strikers and has worked in the game for AFC and for FIFA and for the PFA. So he's got football in his blood. It's in his DNA. Having said that, um, I do think he's the man to take us forward, but he cannot do it on his own. If everybody is working uh, for their own little silo, and this is a word that's cropped up a lot recently, if you're all working with the narrow vision of just what's important for you and nobody's seen the bigger picture, then he's doomed to failure as well because he cannot do it on his own. Uh, 
Um, but I do have faith in James. I think he's the right appointment at the right time. But boy, he's got a big job on his hands at the moment. Um, you know, the first thing that he has to resolve is that TV deal. And then we go from there with everything else. Um, the Women's World Cup, if we were to land it on June the 25th, 26th, that would be great. I think it would, uh, it would give us a boost, certainly in terms of PR, but it's not the panacea. There's a lot of long-term structural problems uh, within the game of football, and they need to be addressed quick smart, uh, and that includes the A-League. Uh, couldn't sum it up any better for myself. I guess in terms of uh, getting help from the ones who, uh, who need it, uh, James has definitely uh, outsourced the starting 11. I think that definitely um, is an indication that he's definitely not going to head down this one track and one-minded uh, perspective. Uh, but uh, just moving on, uh, in relation to sort of the TV deal type things, uh, Chris Fleetwood asks... Why do you think the clubs rejected the investment into the A-League from IMG? We reportedly valued the league at about $120 million. Are you familiar with this story? When was that? All right. So uh, a report came out, I believe, from uh, the Sydney Morning Herald a couple of weeks ago that the A-League was considering on selling a 50% stake or something like that to IMG, uh, who I believe owned the UFC uh, as well. And they reportedly valued the league around 100 to $150 million. Um, considering the A-League is now independent, uh, the clubs reportedly rejected this proposition. Okay, three key problems with that statement. Considering selling their investment, reported to value it, and independent A-League. I, might, so I first... might just check up on this just for you to make sure that my, my stats aren't wrong but i think they're correct well look at the you know the, the, if that's in the report that the first two are speculation uh the third one is factually incorrect because the a-league is not independent and that's a mistake that a lot of people make at the moment it is not fully independent sorry it to interrupt um, simon um an evaluation was conducted last year that deemed the a-league worth between 100 million and 100, 120 million after that By evaluation FFA held talks with two overseas-based firms about selling between 30% and 51% of the A-League. The identity of one of these firms remained, remains unknown. According to sources known to close to negotiations, the other was American sports marketing firm IMG. Had talks, yeah. But that's, that doesn't mean to say oh, that yeah, talk, yeah. IMG said... Well, hang on. That doesn't mean to say that IMG said, here, have $120 million. We're desperate to be in. Look, there will be a lot of big investment companies at the moment that will be looking at the A-League because it does have a lot of potential. Um, but it's, it's a lot more complex than just saying, hey, we're IMG, we value your competition 120 million. Here you go, here's the money. Why didn't you sell to us? It's not that straightforward. Um, and I'm, I'm yet to, to see evidence that IMG actually offered that money uh, they might have, that might be an estimate of the value of the competition overall. Um, but of course, you know, the, the league and certainly the, the broadcast rights at the moment, which are held by Fox Sports, that contract is held with Football Federation Australia, not the clubs. Now that might change over the coming weeks and months if that deal is, is broken or, or revised. 
But as things stand, um, it's not within really the, the club's power to do that. It's, it has to be the FFA. So I think that report, whilst interesting, uh, contains a fair bit of speculation. And that's uh, probably the reason why it hasn't eventuated. It may yet do in, in the coming months. But I, I think there's, I think that story is a lot more complex than is being made out there. There was a follow-up story on May the twentieth. Uh, just to add to your to your points, uh, let me just see this. Yep. So the governing body and A League have suffered a series of financial blows. Obvious, obvious stuff. Uh, Fox Sports uh, and Paul Lederer, the uh, Western Sydney Wanderers chair, and also I believe he's the chair of the A League clubs as well. Uh, yeah, sorry, a, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right. Uh, my view on it is very simple. We'd have another three years contract at the Fox. Um, and that's about it really much, pretty much. So that answers your question, uh, Chris. I hope it does. Well, uh, again, just, just, just to sort of uh, finish off that point, um, and, and obviously the reason that you know, Paul Lederer says that is because it's true. Uh, the league and the FFA do have a contract with Fox Sports for the next three years. So if you were going touting yourself about to an outside investor and saying, hey, how about you come and invest in our league? Um, that would really constitute a breach of, of contract, yeah. contract with Fox. So that's why I say that these things are much more complex than what they appear. Oh yeah, for sure. I think people often take a one minor perspective the amount of comments i've seen of uh i'll just pick up the rights it's not as simple as that it, it's a, a very detailed and complex uh, system and i think something i've been very vocal about in recent weeks um has been the sort of blame that has been censured towards fox sports presenters uh in regards to the on, ongoing disputes and i think which ones i think bobby slater i think he's had a bit of right. a bit of a bit of a, a blame centered towards him i think many other fox sports presenters uh, as well so i think the blame it, it, i've just seen on twitter <laughs> you, you, you know, know he doesn't sign this. the deals <laughs> exactly that's my point i think these are administrators who are at the the heights of of nothing we can possibly imagine and trust me people like simon people like uh, robbie mark uh Bozza, well mark is Bozza, but everyone else um, they want the best for Australian football. These are very tough times. And I'm sure, Simon, you can, if you want to add, um, this is unprecedented and often... Um, like, like keep in mind, Fox Sports have been a... Uh, well, Foxtel have been a supporter of the A-League for over 15 years. You know, this is, this, is not, this is not here nor there. This is tough. And Fox Sports aren't the devil, in my opinion. Look, look, Fox, Fox have invested millions and millions of dollars in the A-League and the Socceroos and everything else over the last 15 years. And yes, at the moment, th things are very tough. But, you know, we do have to remember that without Fox Sports, there wouldn't have been uh, any A-League or W-League or investment in anything else. So that's the first thing. Um, you know, secondly, I, I hear people say, oh, you know, just give the rights to SBS or ABC. Well, that's not the way it works. Um, a, again, you have a contract in place. Secondly, SBS and ABC are government-funded organisations. They don't have the money to invest. Um, and the game needs money to survive. It is a business. Uh, and the final point on this is that, look, 
you know, we understand that people see us on the TV and we're easy targets because we're the public face of the sport. But don't forget, all the current difficulties, these are our jobs on the line as well. Um, if football, you know, leaves Fox Sports or if it disappears completely, then so do we. So, you know, we're, we're very much in favour of what's good for football in Australia, uh, not just because of our jobs, but also because... We've all worked in it for a long, long time. And we're all football fans. We love the game, all of us. Um, so we want what's best for it. And, uh, you know, hopefully over the next few weeks, we'll get that, whatever that looks like. And I think that'll sort of conclude the A-League discussion as a whole. We've got some couple more questions. Uh, Simon, I'm sorry to say, I'm a, I'm a Manchester United fan. I'm just going to say it right now. Hopefully. That's unfortunate. Uh, Which part of Manchester are you from, man? I'm not from Manchester. Oh, okay. Thank you. Uh, well, you know what? I'm not going to support a, like a South African side, you know, Kaza Chiefs or Orlando Pirates or anything like that. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm, I'm mostly, <laughs> mostly a Melbourne Victory fan. I'll put it that way. But, Good. Um, Good. <laughs> but obviously, right. Manchester United are also a passion of mine. But um, something from Denise Pritchard. Uh, <laughs> do you think Manchester City will beat the Gunners in the first game back in the EPL? Unbiased, Simon, uh, I think Man City will trump all Arsenal. Uh, <laughs> completely trump over them. Uh, well, I, I mean, obviously, I hope City win, uh, being, a, being a blue, but uh, also because if we don't, then we're going to hand Liverpool the, the, the title on the first week back, and I don't want that on their side. I hope so. <laughs> But, uh, it's you know, the interesting thing about the Premier League is going to be, because there's been such a long break, I don't think anybody really knows what sort of form any of the teams are going to be in. I mean, yeah, you know, City can hit the groove, yeah. but so could exactly. Arsenal. Nobody, nobody knows. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Arsenal did lose 3-2 against, was it Bristol? I can't remember who it was. was it, it was Char they beat Charlton 6-0. They lost today in a pre-season friendly, or the other day. Can't remember. Anyway, I did, doesn't I did see Liverpool beat Blackburn 6-0 in a, in a friendly, so it yeah. uh, looks as though they're okay. Manchester United drew 4-4 four, four, four against themselves. I'm not, sure what I, I'm not sure how to perceive that. Is that. They can't even beat themselves these yeah, days. It, <laughs> I'm not sure how to perceive that. Is that, oh, our tax's great, or our defence is horrendous. You know, you've got guys like Eric Bailly who are, you know, constantly on the injury list the entire time. And, uh, Were they just playing against the Coes? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, just to add on that form point, you'd, I mean, Bruno Fernandes came out fantastically. Um, and obviously, you've got guys like uh, Billy Gilmore who are broken to the Chelsea first team. So it'll be interesting to see how, if they continue on this tangent or if they sort of dra uh, drop away a little bit. Nobody knows. Um, exactly. And that's because we've had, you know, we've had a two, three month break. So, you know, will players be uh, match fit? Um, do, do clubs who've got players coming back from long-term injury, does that give them a boost? I, I think, you know, perhaps more interesting than the top... Look, we all know Liverpool are going to win the Premier League. The battle for the top four, OK, that's, that's interesting in part. But really to me, the real interesting one is down at the bottom because, mm. you know, those clubs are fighting for their lives and they're not going to have that same home advantage because there's going to be no crowds inside the stadium. So they're the ones that are really up against it. And I, th I do fear a little bit for Brighton, Matty Ryan's team and Aaron Moy um, because they've got to play some of the top six teams. And, you know, again, they don't have that uh, home ground advantage or at least, you know, their supporters. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tricky for them. And I guess sort of just on that Australian point, I'd um, just like to 
we've got some rumors uh, coming in recently. I'm not sure if you're too, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Lyndon Dykes, obviously the, uh, the talisman in uh, in Livingston. Are we familiar with him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, uh, there've been many rumors uh, surrounding Riley McGree moving to uh, Europe. And who else would there be? I think Azani, just a general talking point. Uh, just going through each of them. Uh, what do you What do you view? Well, <laughs> Lyndon Dykes may not he may not even represent Australia. Number one, he may, he's been uh, touted to represent Scotland. I believe Martin O'Neill uh, mm-hmm. called him up in March, or was going to. Uh, didn't eventuate, but um, he's obviously linked to Rangers and Celtic. Uh, what's the next move for Lyndon Dykes, in your opinion? Well, Rangers or Celtic, I think either of those two would would be a great move for him. Um, look, I know that Australia have got him very much on their radar, but uh, clearly so have the Scots, and we've nicked one or two from them, to be fair, in the past. <laughs> uh, Martin Boyle being the most, the most, and Harry Souter. Yeah. Um, so maybe they're due one back, I don't know. Um, but, you know, he's certainly an up-and-comer, and, and um, you know, given that we, we have a paucity of, uh, of players, uh, certainly in his position, then... You know, I think Graham Arnold will probably be looking very seriously at him. But the problem is, at the moment, you know, how does he cap it? Because there's no international football. Exactly. So all he can do is have those conversations. I think with it's regards to the other two, um, you know, Daniel Arzani needs to play. Um, he's been at Celtic long enough now. It's a, it's a massive club, Celtic. But he needs to get playing. Um, he, we know he's a wonderful talent. And what, sorry, uh, sorry, to, sorry to interject, but uh, what league do you think suits his playing style the most? Uh, look, I think he'd be better off going to Holland or uh, Germany, something like that. Um, that's not to say that he can't flourish in the Scottish Premier League. I mean, Tommy Rogic is a you know, touch player as well, one of those flair players, and he's done perfectly well. He's developed that robust side to his game. Um, but I think Arzani will be better suited, perhaps in a little bit more of a technical league, where he can get uh, you know a bit more time on the ball. Um, and the chance to show is the skills that... You know, he undoubtedly has. Um, with regards to Riley McGree, I don't know whether the time's right for Riley. He's had a great season. Interesting. Okay. Like, I haven't really heard that one before. Sorry, say again? I haven't really heard that one before, obviously. Uh, there were reports yeah. coming out that um, Galatasaray, um, well, there's a report that, interestingly enough, AEK Athens from Greece were interested as well. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, why should he stay in Australia? Well, because he's he's been overseas once before, you know, went to Club Bruges and really, I wouldn't say wasted a year of his career because obviously you're still learning when you're training, but he didn't get any first team football uh, <clears throat> and ended, you know, ended up having to come back firstly with Newcastle and lastly with Adelaide to sort of re-establish himself again. Um, I'd like to see him stay another 12 months. That's not to say he's not ready to go. He's had a terrific campaign. But, um, you know, sometimes the grass isn't always greener. The final question, uh, sort of a closing, because <clears throat> the int- as you know, the intro, well, you won't know, but the, the intro to this podcast is actually that Asian Cup goal, uh, James Teresi. Uh, right. So do you think that the Asian Cup final is underrated amongst uh, football fans within Australia? It's not really looked back on, uh, as fondly as the 2006 uh, successes and the various, I, I'd even say the win against England in 2000 and, uh, 2003 or four, I can't remember. But anyway, yeah. Well, look, that unfortunately that speaks volumes as to where our focus is as a country. And, uh, you know, it's something that continually frustrates me that uh, we pay lip service to Asia. Um, I, th- I think Frank Lowy's greatest legacy was moving us into the AFC. It's given us 
better competition for World Cup qualifications, given us the Champions League as well. And we don't really value it. Um, and the classic you know, example of that is the fact that we don't have the three plus one rule in operation. Um, we've thumbed our nose at having an Asian player for every club in our competition, which it just baffles me. And then we wonder why we're not that popular in Asia. Um, you know, this is our future. Um, not just in terms of football, but politically, economically, culturally, Australia is an Asian nation, or is you know certainly that's that's our long-term future. And yet, you know, our gaze is constantly on Europe or South America, particularly when it comes to football. I, I just don't understand it. I, I mean, I get it to a certain extent because we're all of European extraction or South American from somewhere else. But Asia is where it's at. And we shouldn't be comparing ourselves to the Premier League. We're never going to be the Premier League. But we can compare ourselves to Japan, South Korea, China. That's our competition. That's what we need to measure ourselves against. And the fact that we don't remember the Asian Cup finalists fondly, I think, is very indicative of that mindset, unfortunately. This has been such a... Oh, wow. <laughs> I can't even believe this has actually happened. This whole... Conversation. I couldn't imagine that I'd be speaking with Simon Hill uh, one day. Uh, I think this has been a real showing of uh, the commentary talent that we have within our game. And uh, I'd like to think of you as a pioneer to an extent. Obviously, Murray, that's, 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 that. He's, he's, the, he's the king and forever will be. Oh, gee. And forever will be. Rest in peace. Uh, but uh, to the new generation, uh, what, what is your advice to the new generation of commentators coming through? Well, as I said before, do your research, um, develop your style. Don't think it's all about you and uh, keep knocking at the door. And if you're good enough, you'll get an opportunity sooner or later and then it's up to you to take it. Simon, thank you very much. Make sure you uh, get the striptease Simon Hill collection. Uh, link will be in the description. Uh, thank you very much, Simon. Have a fantastic weekend. Thanks, Neil. You too, mate. All the best.